0: Hello and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill, or a cup of coffee you can help keep the podcast episodes coming there's also some fun bonuses for patrons so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. that's patreon.com backslash marine bio life hey one more thing do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology need a little guidance on ocean conservation Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what was the czar's favorite food? A sardine. What do you call a crab that's afraid of small spaces? Claustrophobic. My guest today is Bill Francois. Hailing from France, Bill heard the siren song of the sea at a young age while exploring the tide pools of the Mediterranean. Bill has quite the resume. He's a physicist, marine scientist, and fisherman, and we cover a lot in today's show. With Bill, we chat about the best catch-and-release practices, how whales cook themselves, how being on a national French television show launched his book-writing career, the poetry of physics, and all about gangster fishing. It's such a fun conversation. Please enjoy. Bill Francois, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am really excited to chat with you today. Hello. (laughs) So you just wrote a book called Eloquence of the Sardine, and I have really enjoyed reading it. It was wonderful. Thank you for writing it. You start off with a tide pool and a sardine. Where was this tide pool located?
1: Yeah, I start the story of my book with what has kind of been the beginning of my story with the sea. And it was as a toddler, really, really young, uh, trying to find little animals in a tide pool, uh, which which is not really a tide pool because it's in a sea where there are no tides because it's in the Mediterranean. Uh, Mm. So in the south of France, where I spent all my summers during my childhood and I had a very strong connection to this sea and all the little creatures that live there. And that's what drove me to studying the sea as a career after that.
0: Yeah. Okay. I did not realize that the Mediterranean did not have tides.
1: They have, but really, really small. Like uh, the, the average tide is maybe 10 inches. Okay. Yeah. So really small tides. If you don't know the sea really well, you will not even notice the tides. But if you know it well, you can see a little difference of a few inches of height of water.
0: Fascinating. Okay. So in your book, something that made me laugh was during your, you kind of describe like you're stuck in school and like you're daydreaming about your summer on the coast and fish and you actually start doodling with it, but you didn't seem to like school very much, but then you went on to get your PhD. So what changed?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, In my book, I have fun of uh, the hard times I had at school as a child because I found it really boring and I preferred to escape whenever I could, <laughs> either by physically escaping or by daydreaming, but or making little drawings or having little books on my lap and trying to read them instead of uh, focusing on the lesson. Often books about the sea, actually. But yeah... What made me like school, I I, I think I never really liked school, but during my studies, I ended up choosing science first because it was the stuff that opened most doors. Because in France, and I think it's quite true in the US as well, when you do science, you can do almost everything else as well if you want afterwards. Like, it doesn't close you any doors. If you choose math or physics, then you want to do literature, you can. The reverse is not true. And at least it's like that in the French system. So I did science at the beginning because I really did not know what to do. And I thought it was the the thing that opened most doors. And then I started getting a taste for science and especially for physics which I found fascinating thanks to a few high school teachers that were really, really great and made me understand that with physics you can have a deeper understanding of lots of stuff that surrounds you in the world and sometimes little stuff that you don't notice become fascinating with physics. And for example, a soap bubble, something we don't notice in our everyday life, but if you look at the physics of it, Uh, It's something that is so thin, it decomposes the light of the sun, which is quite amazing. It's a physical force that we don't experience at our level usually, which is a superficial surface tension of uh, an interface between water and air. And it has lots of crazy physical properties. And so I became amazed by physics and that's how I got started into science and at the same time, I was fascinated by the marine creatures. So when I had the opportunity to mix both of these topics, it became really interesting for me.
0: Yeah, I I never thought about a soap bubble being quite so complex. Now I'm not going to look at them the same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, soap bubbles are great. Uh, there is a great book um, by a friend of mine, which has been translated in the US as well. And the name is The Elegance of the Everyday Physics. At least that's the name in French, but uh, I think I can find for you the name in English.
0: That's uh, remarkably similar to the title of your book.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's quite similar, but uh, he wrote it uh, long before mine. And we did not know each other before we met, thanks to a book event. And then we ended up working in the same lab. Oh, how funny. It's Hidden Wonders. In English, the name is Hidden Wonders, the subtle dialogue between physics and elegance. Well, they had a nice English name. (laughs) It's quite a nice name for, for a book. Yeah, Hidden Wonders. And it's about bubbles and drops and liquids and... Foams and lots of small stuff you don't even look at. For example, sand on a beach, you know, it has crazy Mm -hmm. physics that we still don't understand. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of stuff that are mysteries of physics in some little stuff you don't always look at.
0: Yeah. Actually, now that you mentioned sand on the beach, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen under a microscope. And there's so many different kinds of sand. And I never thought about the physical properties, but here I live in Florida and we have, it's, uh, it's South Florida. So we don't really have like the pretty quartz sands that comes from the mountains. We get shell hash. So it's literally crushed shells. Okay. So, I mean, quartz is beautiful to view under the microscope, but shell hash is fascinating because you can almost kind of visualize what it used to be. Oh, you
1: can identify where it comes from, which shell. Wow. That must be amazing. I have seen lots of sands, but never shell sand. I would love to see that.
0: Maybe I'll send you some.
1: Oh, that would be really kind of you. I can send you some coral sand in exchange, if you wish. (laughs) Or some French sand from the mountains. (laughs) I have a collection of sand at home. All right.
0: We'll exchange some sand. That'll be fun. Great. I love it. What prompted you to study hydrodynamics then? I mean, you got to kind of blend fish and physics. Is that just where you found that medium?
1: Yeah, I did uh, a lot of internships in various research areas, mixing biology and physics in general. Mm -hmm. So I did some about uh, at different scales. You know, I did at the molecular level. In a great university in Australia, it was really fascinating studying proteins. Then I studied a little bit spider webs, which was really interesting as well. So it's a much larger scale than proteins, but still quite small compared to the fish. And then I ended up studying the hydrodynamics of fish and collective motion, which is quite an interesting topic as well, and very close to biology and zoology.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what stuck more than the proteins that you studied in Australia?
1: To me, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Actually, I did study sand as well. Before that, I did a, a big internship for my master's degree about uh, the way very, very thin sand, so almost a mud, can flow. Because the way sand flows in general when you, you put it on a slope mm-hmm. is not explained by physics yet. And it's a big mystery of physics. If you put sand on a slope and then you move the angle of the slope more and more and more, at some point it will start flowing. And before that, it does not. And the point at at which it starts flowing, we don't understand why. Like we cannot predict it. And it, it even depends on the history of the slope itself. Like, if you start with a larger slope, you can go, go at higher angles without having the sound flowing. Uh, it can be really surprising and it's a big mystery of science. Like, I think the one who will solve this will really make a breakthrough discovery. But, to me, fish were sticking a bit more for my personality because I've, I'm fascinated by fish. So I did my PhD on fish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Actually, you kind of brought up a point that was in your book about how, you know, we look back at how little people knew back in the day of the ocean. You know, you say research works that were like, oh, there's only 75 fish in the sea, which we know now that is wildly inaccurate. And how now we think that we know maybe all there is to know. but you're predicting in the future, we'll we'll look back and be like, we knew nothing back then. I think that's really fascinating that you kind of like bring up that there's still more out there to discover and understand.
1: Yeah, it's a simple idea, but uh, lots of people uh, don't realize that. I think nowadays we think we know everything. But if we look back at even a 100 years ago, we knew nothing that we know today. And we we thought lots of stuff about the brain, for example, or about the fish in the sea that we know now are completely false. And mm-hmm. it's sure that the things we know today will turn out to be completely false in uh, maybe a hundred years, or at least a lot of the things we know today and will make even more discoveries. So I think it gives a lot of hope to the scientists to keep that in mind.
0: Yes. Absolutely. So what about fish hydrodynamics did you end up studying?
1: I ended up studying two different aspects of fish hydrodynamics that are a bit linked together, which is the effect of size on fish hydrodynamics. First, the effect of fish size on the gait and the type of locomotion. And second, the effect of fish size on collective motion, and especially on leadership in uh, pairs of fish. So who is the leader when two fish are swimming together was the the main question. It's a matter of of fish size and of fish personality and lots of uh, different stuff. But on our experiment, we measured that when two fish of the same size were paired together, there was no clear leadership the leadership was shared among the fish relatively evenly. We define the leadership as the ability to take decisions in directional changes when they swim. So it's Mm -hmm. the one that turns first and is followed by the other in a certain direction. And we measured that with some data analysis tools. So when we have two fish of the same size, they share the leadership. And when we have two fish of different sizes, the leader is the largest one in most cases, even when it's not swimming in front, which is quite amazing. We conducted the experiments in a Friday Harbor in the state of Washington.
0: Oh, okay. So what, what fish were you monitoring?
1: Uh, they are called Cymatogaster aggregata in Latin, and the American name is the Shiner Perch. Mm-hmm. It's a small fish that lives in the Pacific Northwest. And they have the particularity that they are completely viviparous. And they make one offspring every year, which is almost an adult when it hatches, when it's born. So we don't have development problems like it's not a larva. We have juvenile fish that are almost all the same as an adult, especially for their swimming style. So it's quite interesting to study them because they are just miniature adults.
0: Oh, that's really interesting.
1: You can have a wide range of sizes of fish with uh, all the same developmental characteristics.
0: How did you observe them? Were they in tanks or did you figure out how to film them in the wild?
1: Yes, they were in tanks. We caught them in the wild and we put them in tanks with acclimation protocols uh, to make sure they all have the same conditions of light and temperature and feeding, etc., And then we, we released them. But we, we put them on big tanks for quite a long time to be able to have uh, reliable measurements.
0: Yeah. What made you choose fish from the Pacific?
1: Actually, I had the opportunity to do a research project at Friday Harbor Laboratories in the Pacific. So that's why we studied them there. Mm. But that was because of opportunities there. If not, we would have used fish from elsewhere. We wanted a, a model species, easy to work with. But of course, the results could be different with another species. And we know that. But for our experiment, we needed a few model species. So we focused on this one. And for a few other experiments, we also used some zebrafish. So it's a freshwater fish that is raised in laboratory.
0: Okay. What were your findings with the zebrafish?
1: Yeah, the zebrafish were doing the same thing for this behavioral question, but we Mm -hmm. mostly focused on ontogeny for the zebrafish to see how the swimming evolves with the the development of the fish. So a question we don't ask with the Shiner Perch because the Shiner Perch does not develop once it's born it's already almost an adult. But the zebra fish, when it's born, it goes out of an egg that is a millimeter wide, and it will grow to a few centimeters. Mm-hmm. So it's a growth that is comparable to a mouse to elephant growth in terms of uh, weight during its life. So it's quite an amazing growth. And most of the fish have a similar kind of growth. And the physical forces that act on them are really, really different between the age of when they just hatch and they are really small and the adult age because when a creature is very small in water, it undergoes the forces of the water viscosity which comes from the water molecules hitting the the surface of the little animal and it's so little that this has an impact on the little animal And it makes it swim really, really differently than would swim a bigger animal such as us. Mm -hmm. For example, us, when we swim in a swimming pool, we can gain momentum. Like you make a stroke motion and during the recovery, you gain momentum and you glide. A very small fish cannot do that. It will never glide. The water viscosity will stop it immediately at the moment it stops beating its tail or making strokes or whatever.
0: Right. So that would be the equivalent of like one of those uh, training pools where it has the current of water constantly going through and people just swim against the current. If you would stop swimming.
1: It would even be worse. It would be the equivalent of swimming swimming in a swimming pool of honey. Like if you can imagine a swimming pool full of honey and you would swim in that kind of liquid. It's the exact physics equivalent of what feels a baby fish swimming in water.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: It's just as sticky for it. You can imagine with all what it can imply. For example, uh, for breathing, it's really complicated for a baby fish to breathe because of this water being so viscous for it. It has to breathe honey. And for, so so they mostly breathe through their skin, actually, rather than with the gills. And the gill breathing will develop a bit further in their life, a bit later.
0: Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah, it's really, it's really complicated for the baby fish to swim. And that's why most fish larvae have really weird shapes, you know? Like they don't look much like the adult fish. If you look at a swordfish larva, for example, or a sunfish larva, they really have nothing to do with the adult. And that's because they have to develop these weird shapes to swim in honey.
0: Yeah, you know, I've seen many larval fish under the microscope, and I've noticed that they don't look anything like the adult counterpart. And I never understood the physical necessity of that
1: difference. It's because the physical laws acting on the larval fish are completely different with the water, but also a lot of other stuff linked with uh, what we call size effects. For example, when an object is really small, usually its surface is really big compared to its mass, because the mass, the weight of an object is linked to its volume, which evolves as the square as the length, multiplied by the lens multiplied by the lens you know like the volume of uh, a square for example is uh, exponential yeah exponential so it's it evolves much faster the weight than the surface so the effects of surface are much more important for small animals than the the effects of the weight and for example for warm-blooded animals the heat comes from the body, so it comes from the weight, the mass of muscles that produce the heat. And the heat expenditure and exchange of heat with the water comes from the surface. If the animal is very small, it has a big surface and a small weight. So for warm-blooded animals, it's really a problem. And that's why you don't have small, warm-blooded animals. All the very small animals are cold-blooded the smallest warm-blooded animal is a mouse, a kind of mouse. And you cannot have anything smaller than that. And in the reverse, warm-blooded animals will be much larger, but they cannot be too large either. Because if they are too large, they will overheat because the weight will be too important compared to the surface that allows the heat to be spent in the outside. So if an animal is too large and it's warm-blooded, it starts to cook itself. And that's the problem that face the whales. And that's why if you kill a whale, it will cook alone. What? Yeah, yeah. That's what the Eskimos and native people who hunt whales do. They kill the whales and they wait, and it cooks alone with its own heat. Because the whale needs some blood capillaries to make the the blood constantly flow close to their skin in order to increase, kind of increase the surface Mm
0: -hmm.
1: of the exchange of heat between the blood and the outside so that it will spend its heat. Otherwise, the heat will cook the whale. And if the whale dies, the heart does not work anymore, so the blood cannot move, and the heat is enough to start cooking the meat. And that's why the limit of size for a warm-blooded animal is a whale. Huh? You cannot make bigger than that. Otherwise, it cooks itself.
0: Oh my gosh. I never thought about that either. This is so fascinating. So, okay, so whales, they have to be alive in order not to cook. <laughs> I mean, they have to be alive in order to be alive, right?
1: That's well said. Yeah, they have to be alive in order not to cook.
0: Oh my gosh. It's okay, so they use their blood capillaries and push them to the the surface of their skin, in order to exchange this heat with cooler water. Yeah. At least water can pull the heat away a little bit better, even if yeah. they're not in actually cold water. And once they pass, their blood is not actually circulating to the surface of their skin, so they don't have that, that transfer of heat, and so they actually will cook. And that's what you're saying the indigenous people kind of relied on, and that's how they eat whale.
1: Exactly, yeah. And wow. on the opposite side of the spectrum, the smallest warm-blooded animal, which is a kind of mouse... It's called a shrew and this shrew, it eats insects and worms and stuff like that. As it's on the opposite side, the problem of this mouse is that its surface is too important compared to its weight. So it produces too little heat and it has too much heat exchange. It loses too much heat through its skin. So this poor shrew has to eat all the time. Otherwise, it faints because it, it has hypothermia. Mm. And when they get trapped in some traps, because the scientists often try to catch them to study them, mm-hmm. they faint. If they don't eat every half hour, they faint. And they are so tiny that just putting them in your hand will put them back to life because it will hit them a little bit. Oh, my
0: gosh. That's my kind of mouse. It gets too cold and it
1: faints. <laughs> <laughs> The same thing happens with the hummingbird. The hummingbirds, they have to eat all the time. And their problem is that they sleep during the night and they cannot eat and sleep at the same time. So when they sleep, they they kind of faint with hypothermia. And actually they don't sleep, they hibernate. And they are not really frozen, but it's just like if they were hibernating and they need the, the heat of the sun to go back to life every morning.
0: Oh my gosh. There's something very poetic about that though. Like the sun brings them to light.
1: Oh yeah. There would be a nice book to write about these animals, but they are not aquatic animals. So we don't like them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we admire them, but we don't write books about them.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what are some of the differences or Similarities that you've seen between some of the fish that you worked with in America versus in France.
1: That's an interesting question because we did some uh, beach saining in America to try to catch some fish for the lab, and then we studied them and put them back. Mm -hmm. And it was really fascinating because uh, we we found a lot of fish that are almost the same than in France. Sometimes even. The same species or almost the same species like the, the dogfish, for example, in the Pacific is almost the same as the spiny dogfish in France. And they were considered the same species until last year or two years ago, where they decided to put them apart. But they are really, really close. And at the same time, some other fish are just similar species, but not like they look almost the same and they play exactly the same role in the food chain, but they are not the same species. Like the gunnel fish, it's a kind of eel in the US. is not exactly the same as in France, but they are both gunnel fish and quite similar. Mm-hmm. And for some species, the whole genus or the whole family does not exist on one side or the other of the planet. But as it's exactly the same environment and kind of the same temperature and ecosystem some really similar fish have evolved to play exactly the same role and for example this shiner perch that i studied we have a fish that is really similar in france that we call a gris sea bream and it does not exist in the pacific but it's in the atlantic and mediterranean And it plays exactly the same role in the ecosystem. And it has evolved exactly the same shape and the same kind of behavior. But it's a kind of convergence in evolution.
0: Mm. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I was amazed to see that. Like, I was studying a place that I did not know. And I found a lot of similar stuff as if it was a It was a kind of universal stuff, the marine ecosystem, you know. They all have uh, the big predators, uh, little eel-like fish that lives in the rock, etc. It was amazing to see that.
0: Yeah. The world is small, right? It's so big and yet so small.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: (laughs) So I found online that you were in a TV contest
1: the grand oral. <laughs> wow, you are a great uh, spy for online stuff because that was only in French. How did you find about that? That's
0: amazing. <laughs> I prefer the term researcher over spy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was
1: looking for the right word. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think journalist is a more accurate word or, or researcher, yeah. Investigator. Investigator, there
0: we go. <laughs> Well, I know just a petit peu de la France. Ah, good. I love that you were in a contest and this was during grad school. How did this even come about?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was even, uh, yeah, in in PhD, uh, yeah, grad school. Oh, it's an, another part of my life, I would say. In parallel to science, I've always been um, loving the world of words. And writing and poetry, stuff like that. And I was always doing that as a hobby because I never studied literature mm. after high school, you know. Uh, I did only science and I kept the literature part as a hobby. We have a weird system in France where the undergrad years can be really, really hard and competitive and you do only working for three or four years Mm -hmm. and then you get to a kind of graduate school and Mm -hmm. then you get much, much, much less work because it has been so hard and competitive to get into that after that, uh, it's a bit more free And during these years, I had more time. So I did what we call Eloquence Contest, which is a kind of debating contest where you write some text on subjects they give you with a limited amount of time. And uh, then you perform it on stage. You you say your text, it can be poetry, it can be debate, it can be a speech like uh, an after dinner speaker at a ceremony or a political speech. It can be a lot of stuff it has to be about uh, five minutes long and it's in a competition and it's uh, a popular activity in France to have these kinds of contests. And at the time, I uh, I loved doing that. So I did quite a few and then they decided to do one on TV, on okay. the French uh, national TV. So as I I had done a few they found my name on internet because they are good researchers as well and (laughs) so they called me and they asked me if I wanted to participate and yeah I participate and I was lucky I won the the contest which was fun
0: (laughs) yeah I love finding that because I feel like that blends so much of kind of you know the science and the communication aspect of it
1: exactly yeah and (laughs) it's fun because these were two aspects completely different in my life at that time. I -hmm. did the science on one hand and the communication and the literature on the other. Mm
0: -hmm. And I had
1: always wanted to mix both, but I never did. And when I won this contest, the French TV are not very well organized. So they did not think of a prize for the contest until the last minute. (laughs) Uh, Usually they think and they get a partnership with a a cruising company or a car company or whatever. And they end up offering a cruise or a car. And this time they did not. And at the last minute, they, they called uh, one of their friends who is an, uh, a publisher. And the friends say, yes, well, the winner can uh, write a book in my publishing company. And as I won, they asked me, uh, they, they gave me the prize of publishing a book, which Had been a dream for me for a long time because I always wanted. So they told me, Well, that's great. You will publish a book where you talk about the art of public speaking and eloquence and stuff like that. And I said, No, I won't write that. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a great speech person. I just do that for fun and I'm good at it, but I'm not an expert. But I'm an expert in fish. So if you like, I can write one about fish and they told me well uh, why not <laughs> try to do it but please put Eloquence in the title and that's how I came up with this weird title now you have the the, the real secret story about the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh I, you know I wondered well I saw that you got the publishing contract with Fayard, so that was my question is you know was that what prompted you to actually write the book but I love that that was really the prompting of the title more than anything <laughs> sounds like a book was going to get published whether or not you won this contest
1: <laughs> yeah 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 because it's really hard you know to get a publisher for nonfiction or fiction books it's it, it's really really hard like he, I have a friend who is a, a publisher in France and he told me the the figures the statistics and apparently in France but I think it's even worse in the U.S. Uh, Out of uh, 400 books, there is only one that is published because people have sent the manuscript to the publisher with hope that it will be published, you know. All the others are published because the publisher knows the writer or because the writer is already famous, so he has a contract or Mm -hmm. stuff like that, TV shows or stuff like that. Like, only one out of 400 is published because they send it to the so if you send uh, if you send a book to a publisher you have almost no chance nobody has no chance to to get published it's really sad and i think it will change with self publishing which is becoming something really big in the usa and i hope it will uh, change a bit the world of publishing because it's really unfair there are so many talented people who wait all their life without getting published, even though they make great books. So I, I hope it will change.
0: Yeah. It's a really good point. I think one of the best ways that highlights this, I think JK Rowling, right, the author of yeah. Harry Potter, one mm-hmm. of the best, most read books ever. I what was the statistic? It was like she sent it to fifty, hundred publishers before somebody finally took a chance on her. And now look at it. So and she would yeah. would have been yeah. one of those four hundred.
1: That's amazing, and now it's probably the most read books in the world, or right. maybe just after the Bible or something like that. Right. But yeah, it's it's amazing, and it was refused everywhere. Right, That's what so it, it means the the quality of the book has nothing to do with the success rate. It's right. just that the market is completely saturated. Right, I hope it will change because publishers don't always do much for the books except lending money Mm -hmm. and I think this is unfair they take a lot of money and Mm -hmm. they don't work that much
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I could see that so you have some drawings in the book are they yours
1: yeah they are mine
0: I love it you know I wondered the whole time I figured they had to have been yours but but it doesn't say anywhere if they're yours or not
1: I think it's written somewhere, but I'm not even sure. And the drawing on the cover is mine as well. Really? Yeah.
0: That makes sense because it falls in the same vein as the rest of them. So I love that you're blending this world of science and communication, writing your book, and you started your own podcast. What's the title of your podcast and what do you chat about?
1: Uh, It's a podcast in French, of course, um, called uh, Petit Poisson Deviendra Podcast, PPDP. It's initials uh, for a sentence that means little fish will become podcast because we have an expression in French that says little fish will become big. And it's uh, a kind of pun with that. But as you guessed, it's a podcast about fish, but also about all marine creature and the life underwater. And on each episode, it's really short episodes, like five minutes episodes. Okay. And we focus on a species or a group of species or a fun fact about marine life. So it can be um, manatees, for example, or the giant oarfish, or it can be the, the family of deep for example, the lung, lung fishes. Or it can be a, an episode about the swim bladder and its amazing properties, uh, stuff like that. And every time we, we focus on a, a thing like that, I do it with a, a guy who makes some podcasts in France as well about nature. And it's a kind of interview and discussion between both of us. It's quite fun to make.
0: Yeah. Is it all in French?
1: Unfortunately, Yes. <laughs>
0: unfortunate it's beautiful
1: language (laughs) you know now with deep l and google translate and stuff like that uh, i think the language barrier will be over in a few years Uh, the other day i was on a podcast in polish and i don't understand a word in polish i don't even know how to say hello and i just put the podcast with the microphone and on my phone at the same time i had a a kind of Google translator and I could read what was uh, said in the podcast almost instantly.
0: Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah, it it works. Yeah. I've not tried that. That's amazing. Technology is amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really works well. The, The new translators work really well. I think very soon we will not have to learn languages anymore. Yeah. You will not have to undergo my horrible French accent anymore. I will speak through a microphone that will put perfect English instead of what I say now. <laughs>
0: but I love the French accent, one. And two, I feel like, what are you going to sound like, a robot? Like, I don't know. Yeah,
1: that's quite frightening as well. And they can even imitate the style of the sentences. Now, the, the artificial intelligence can even translate a few jokes And make their own jokes. So it's quite frightening.
0: (laughs) Slowly becoming cyborgs. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) So, in your book, you talk about street fishing, which was just fascinating to me because I picture Paris, as you kind of described it, as very much a city and concrete jungle and with people, and it's kind of hard to get in connection with nature. But you found the underground world of street fishing. How did you discover
1: this? Oh yeah, it's a great activity that I do in Paris. I've always been fascinated by the sea and marine ac- animals and aquatic animals in general because mm-hmm. fish don't only live in the sea and freshwater is fascinating as well. And for years I didn't notice that in Paris where I live, we have the Seine river and in the Seine river and in some underground canals that go around the city. Uh, We have a great biodiversity. And one day I decided to have a look and try to go fishing in the Seine because I thought there would be some fish and I wanted to to try. And immediately I met some very nice people and I met a whole world of uh, a, a great community of anglers who fish in the Seine. So it's a really particular type of fishing. It's sport fishing where they do only catch and release and they really respect the fish really well. They are very committed to protecting the the fish. And it's really amazing because culturally, it's anglers who are linked with the culture of uh, street activities, hip hop and street art, you know, graffiti <laughs> So it's really what you would not expect of a French fisherman. Like if you imagine a Paris fisherman, maybe you imagine more elderly people sitting quietly and uh, drinking wine on the, on the bank of the river. No, it's more rap contender and uh, hip hop. dancers who go fishing uh, at night uh, in Paris after a party and stuff like that it's really really fun people and people from everywhere like all ages men women children uh, every social background and it's a community of about a thousand people in downtown Paris and a bit more in the suburbs. So I met a lot of friends and we discovered great stuff with fish in Paris. We have in the middle of the Seine River in Paris, close to the Eiffel Tower, for example, you can see two meters long uh, catfish. So that's uh, about uh, six, uh, seven feet.
0: That's a big catfish.
1: <laughs> they can be up to eight feet. Uh, I caught some... Uh, up to six, seven feet, and that's already impressive. We catch them with French baguette bread. It's really picturesque, <laughs> but we have thirty species of of fish, so over thirty species, and so we don't have only big catfish, we have eels, we have shad, we have pike, walleye, lots of stuff, and even some uh, jellyfish crayfish, crabs, Mm -hmm. sponges. I caught with an American friend. Actually, I caught a freshwater sponge the other day, accidentally. But uh, I was amazed to see. They really look like saltwater sponges. I didn't know we had them in Paris. So yeah, we have a lot of biodiversity and it's really fun. And catching the big catfish in the middle of Paris with French baguette always attracts tourists, of course. (laughs) And I met lots of American tourists because they are really interested by fishing. Usually in America, the fishing is a big stuff. And so I met, uh, I met a lot of American friends this way. And even a Pulitzer Prize photographer the other day who took a picture of my catfish, but I didn't know he was uh, David Turnley, who is a, a great uh, American photographer. And that was a, a really fun uh, encounter.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Did he give you the photo?
1: (laughs) Yeah, he did. It's an amazing photo. He put it on his website and uh, Instagram page and he gave me the photo and it was really fun. It was in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral, you know. Yeah, And I was going in the water because we are very careful with these fish and we always carefully release them and we almost don't put them out of the water. So when we catch these, we go inside the water to take a picture, measure them and then release. So I was going inside the water when he came and he wanted to take a picture, but I didn't know who he was. So I said, go ahead, take a picture. So yeah, he was really committed. He he went almost knee deep in the water to take picture. He covered himself in in mud and uh, duck (laughs) poop to get the best (laughs) angle of the picture. And then he said, uh, I'm a great photographer, a famous photographer. And I said, "Okay, uh, I didn't know, you know. And then I looked (laughs) on the Internet and I saw he he had taken pictures during Vietnam War and during... uh, 9-11, 9-11, he, he went in, in the 9-11 to save people. He got a medal for that. He's a really famous guy. Oh, my and gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Really yeah. lucky to meet these guys.
0: <laughs> what a chance encounter. That's incredible. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> really is crazy. That's
1: the kind of encounters you make in Paris when you look underwater.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, your book just really puts the metaphorical mask on and like has you dive down into the water with you. And I really, really enjoyed reading your book. And one of the things you kind of brought up was, you know, we've lost a little, we've lost touch with the food chain and kind of where we fall in line with it. And I thought that was a really good point, something I've been thinking a lot about. But there used to be some indigenous cultures that worked with animals and could actually kind of speak a sort of language with them. And used animals like remoras to help catch bigger fish and (laughs) that story was incredible. One of my questions is and I don't know if you found this in your research or not or in the story, how did they tie a line to a remora so that it could actually attach to a bigger animal and they could reel it in?
1: Yeah it's quite an amazing way of fishing they had and it has been documented by too many peoples independently, so we are sure that it's true. like it's mm-hmm. not uh, fake news or, or legend, and it has been observed until the 1980s, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of really precise data about how they did it exactly. We have a few hypotheses. They did attach the line to the remora. I think that's not the harder the hardest part, because if you have a thin line, you can tie it with a knot around the the tail of the remora, for example.
0: That was my question, like around the tail?
1: I saw very few drawings from explorers who saw it and who detailed it, documented it on drawings. They usually just wrote, they, they tie the remora. But mm-hmm. the very few drawings I saw show either around the tail or by pinching a little hole inside the tail. Mm. But I think that's not easy because you have to be careful not touching any tendon or or the, um, the spine. Right. So, but, but if you do it, maybe in some hard parts of. The what we call the pterygophores, which are the bones that attach the dorsal fin to the to the body of the fish. This is a very strong part. This is where we attach the tags when we tag mm-hmm. some fish, and okay. it's painless for the fish and it's quite strong. So maybe that's where they did it. If they made a hole in the fi- into the fish, but maybe they did not make a hole because apparently the fish were the remoras were almost tamed. And they came back to the boat when the line broke, for example. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of tamed. And one of the explanations I also saw about why they were tamed is that apparently they were fed by the indigenous with some wastes and especially with some poop. Apparently the remora, as they eat the fish poop all the time, they also ate human or cattle poop (laughs) from uh, indigenous. Yes.
0: They, they really developed a taste for the flavor,
1: huh? Yeah, probably. That's what I, I read in some articles of people who were discussing the techniques. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not really sure about how they attach the remora. It, it's quite a lost art. A guy tried in the 1880s to, to do it and he failed. Yeah.
0: Oh, how did you find these stories?
1: Depends on the story. A lot of the stories I found by knowing people who told me about them. And, you know, a lot of people about the sea, they tell you a lot of stories that sound <laughs> fake, you know. Yes. Yes. And I love fact checking these stuff because sometimes you figure out that they are fake and it's interesting. But sometimes you also figure out that they are true. Or oh, that the truth is even more crazy than the fake story. So each time I hear a fisherman or a naturalist or a sailor or whoever tells me a story about some marine animals, mm-hmm. I look it up. Each time I-, I find a weird animal as well, when I find an animal that sounds interesting, I love looking it up and reading a lot of books about it. So that's about how I find most of my stories and traveling and meeting people and speaking with them, you know. But then I also found quite a few stories when I was designing some um, guided visits at the Paris Aquarium, which I did as a side job during my PhD. I guided tourists at the Paris Aquarium and it allowed me to try most of my stories on people and see which stories the people like the most. And I think it's really interesting for science outreach to do that because you see what people like, what people don't like and what people don't like at first, but start liking if you introduce it A different way. For example, physics, usually if you start by saying, I will explain you the physics of uh, they just close their ears and close their eyes and run away. (laughs) But if you explain it another way and say, oh, this seahorse is really amazing and the way it feeds is linked with properties of the water, and then you start explaining, it can have another kind of impact and it works much better. So, yeah, I, I developed some of my stories also like that by talking to people and investigating some subjects. And internet has a lot of great stuff on it if you look uh Uh, I have the chance of being able to look in French, English, and I know all the names of fish in Spanish and a lot of them in Italian. I don't speak Italian and I speak bad Spanish, but if you speak French, you understand Italian. Like you can read it. You cannot speak it, but you can read it. So it gives three times as many stories. So it's uh, really fun to do. Try to see in different culture how it works. And yeah, that's where most of my stories come from when they don't come from my own experience, of course.
0: Yes. I mean, some of the stories that you found in here were absolutely fascinating. Like I didn't know Linnaeus changed his name nine times. Um, Yeah. The whole story story of the, I might butcher how to say this, but the tech with the rabbis and the the special Mm. guy, like amazing thousand year old mysteries. I was blown away.
1: Yeah, this one is a is a fun one as well.
0: So, is that your next book, the phys- the eloquence of the physics of the ocean? That's too much of a mouthful. Eh, you,
1: you are not too far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can discuss how baby fish swim through honey and seahorses feed through water properties, or how how the water affects how they feed. Yeah, yeah,
1: there are lots of stuff to do uh, about the the physics of marine creatures and I hope I will have good news about that soon uh, with a a new book (laughs) I have uh, many book projects at the same time but uh, this one is ongoing work
0: awesome well I'll read it I thoroughly enjoyed this book all right as we wrap up here I have a a few questions I like to ask each listener first up what does the ocean mean to you
1: that's a good question (laughs) I think it's one of the last wild places on Earth and really full of mystery. So that's really what it means the most to me. It's something that is wild, untamed and unknown. And we have less and less unknown places, you know, with uh, Google Earth and the ability to travel anywhere and even the ability to see through air. So we can see everything on Earth, but in the sea, we don't. So we have a lot of species that we don't know, even some big animals that maybe we have never seen. I think it's the last unknown place on Earth that allows me to dream of something new all the time and to of constant discoveries. That's what it most means to me. Mm, yeah,
0: it is a place of mystery. I yeah. agree with that 100%. If you were given a blank check to use on any project, what would you use it for?
1: That's a good question because uh, I, I'm I'm saying good question all the time. That's not good. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it's a tricky question because yeah. I have projects that I would love to do for my own curiosity. Mm-hmm. like studying some uh, some mysterious species such as the spearfish, which is the smallest of all billfish and is really, really unknown. There are quite a few fish that are mysterious in the sea and I would love to know more about them because I just find them fascinating and because it can be a good way to, to learn how to protect them as well. But I think if I was given a blank check for a big research project, I would probably spend that on something more useful for the big stakes the sea ecosystems face today and probably something about trying to sustainably raise some species that can be herbivore or develop new ways of uh, producing food in a sustainable way to try to prevent overfishing and pollution and stuff like that. I think I would invest in a project like this Mm -hmm. or producing biofuel with uh, algae or stuff like that to try to improve the quality of the ecosystem and to protect it.
0: Yeah, so a small-scale project to satisfy your curiosity and a large-scale project to satisfy global demands and needs.
1: Yeah, let's say it like that. Okay,
0: I dig it. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the field where you just saw some amazing fish or things just went right and it was a glorious day. Or it could be a day where things happened and you got, paid, you got chased by the Paris gendarmes and it makes it a really great story now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got chased quite a few times by the Paris gendarmes, actually. And... Uh... <laughs> I know you know it because it's written in the book, but you probably don't know that my English publisher wanted to make a censorship on this part of the book because they have, yeah, they have all of their books read by a lawyer. Uh And the lawyer tries to see what can make a problem. And their lawyer expressed that they did not want to publish this part of the book because it's uh, the apology of an illegal activity. So they rewrote the whole chapter, getting rid of the gendarmes part. So it was really absurd because the whole end of this chapter where, you know, the gendarmes run after us. Well, we ran for no reason and they just got rid of all the, the reference to the gendarmes. So it was uh, completely stupid. So I told them, no, I don't agree. I take the risk. <laughs> And yeah, of course, I never got sued by anyone for having written that. uh, And uh, gendarmes are still running after me, but they don't even know that I go to even more illegal places, such as the Palace of the King of Morocco or the Versailles Castle in Paris, where I go fishing for giant pike (laughs) (laughs) and they never caught me for the moment. But uh, we release the fish and it's just for the joy of studying them and watching them. You know, we use barbless hooks and uh, special equipment and we don't even take them out of the water, but we still get sometimes run after by some gendarmes.
0: I love your famous illicit fishing spots.
1: <laughs> oh, we have uh, very good illicit fishing spots. Yeah. <laughs> we call that gangsta fishing and we have lots of rules. <laughs> <famous laughs> Gangster because fishing. People from the the street world, and they have their own codes of ethics. So, for example, if you do gangster fishing, you have to release the fish and take care of it. And you have to clean the fishing spot as well. If you see any waste or garbage on it, you have to clean it yourself. You go there illegally, but then it's your responsibility to protect it. There is a, a French fisherman who is also a philosopher and an interesting guy who launched this kind of movement and it has a lot of uh, ethical rules to protect the ecosystem but yeah we have crazy gangster fishing spots in castles and private properties where we get run after by uh, dogs and uh, some friends even got shot with uh, flashball uh, rifles oh my gosh at <laughs> <laughs> the moment everyone survived but <laughs> it's quite violent <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's like that. It's quite a fun stuff. But we are not the only ones, you know. In the US, there is a guy called James Prosek who wrote a book about trout, And he went around the world in illegal places to try and find the rarest trout and paint them for science and art. Mm-hmm. And he made some really nice watercolor books. And I didn't know other people were doing that, but apparently, yeah, lots of people dive or fish in illegal places to find some wild nature, because sometimes you have to break a bit the rules. Like, I respect all the rules that are in going in the way of protecting nature, but the mm-hmm. ones that are just going in the way of protecting some privileges of stupid uh, rules of property or stuff like that, I don't care much. <laughs> I like it but to tell you about the best uh, field trip it was completely legal it was probably in the mediterranean sea mm-hmm. where i i went for tagging tuna and we ended up seeing uh, uh, a mobula Monterey ray and swimming with it for a few hours under the boat and it oh was dancing under the boat yeah the mobula rays so it's like a miniature Monterey. ray and we have lots of them in the med, but you only see them when the sea is very flat. And when you see them, they will always dive right under the boat. And if you wait, they come back up and they investigate the boat. And we managed to have this one come to the boat. And we played with it for, yeah, about an hour. And my mother was there as well. So I got to share it with her and, and some very good friends as well. And it was really uh, fascinating to to see that. And of of course, we saw whales and dolphins because we always see them in the Mediterranean this time of year. But yeah, it was probably one of my best days out there in the field.
0: Yeah, dancing with mobula rays.
1: Yeah, amazing.
0: Awesome. What are some good catch and release tips for people? You you mentioned that when you're doing your gangster fishing, it's usually all catch and release. You keep the fish in the water and use barbless hooks.
1: The very best catch and release tips are on an American website called Keep Fish Wet. And this website is based on science only. So they go to all the conferences and they read all the articles scientific peer-reviewed articles about catch and release to try to make the best advice. So this is where you will find the best advice depending on the species. But in general, the most important is to decrease the air exposure of fish as much as you can, but it really depends on the fish. For example, a carp, you can take it out of the water for over 15 minutes without damage sometimes if you do it well, whereas a trout, after five seconds it can start having an impact on the fish survival rate. Not because it will kill the fish, but because it will make it more vulnerable to predators. So I think the most important is to try to decrease air exposure. You can take great pictures of a fish when it's still in the water. So it's useless to remove it out of the water. And if you do remove it, you can always remove it for only a few seconds where it will have no impact. Then always wet your hands when you touch a fish. Don't put it in dry surfaces. Um, use the adapted gear and especially hooks that are barbless or circle hooks that don't hook deep the fish, but only hook it uh, on the mouse. And then for more specific advice, the Keep Fish Wet website has some great advice, but if you do that already, You can have a 100% survival rate with no problems if you are careful of not fishing in too hot waters as well. If the water is too warm, it's physics. The oxygen is less concentrated in the water. So the fish take more time to recover. And after a certain temperature, it can be very bad for the fish. So, For example, in the middle of the summer, if the water is too hot, it's better not to go fishing.
0: Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. Do you ever keep any any of your catches?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, not the ones caught gangster fishing in Paris. <laughs> but, um, yeah, sometimes I even spearfish a little bit. That's... A different thing you know it's not a naturalist uh, activity but it's just uh, a feeding stuff and it's good to have the feeling that you're part of the food chain and know that know where your fish comes from and i prefer to catch it myself than uh, buy it at a store and yeah i sometimes keep uh, a few fish when it's the right season and the right size and it's the opportunity to cook a good meal
0: absolutely i think spearfishing is kind of like the, the ultimate hunting fishing, right? Like pull pull in line, you're above the water, but spearfishing, you actually get down in their element.
1: You are like another fish, yeah. Uh, there is one that is even more ultimate, but I never had the chance to do it, which is bare hands fishing. Mm. And yeah, some people in some areas of the world catch fish with their hands, but Seen that. you need very protected ecosystems to do that. Huh? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's called noodling. They so do it with catfish. And they put their hands in holes and let big catfish bite them.
1: For the big catfish, yeah, I saw that. (laughs) We could do it in Paris with our catfish, but uh, only on the spawning season where they are on the nest. But I would not do that. It's better to leave them alone on spawning season.
0: I think it's better to leave them not biting my arm. Period.
1: As well, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have big teeth, but... It's like a grind. It can uh, yeah, it can be painful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and take into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today?
1: For a conservation idea? Well, two of them, easy to make. First one, when you go out, whether it is for fishing, for diving, for just having fun around the water it's always good to carry a bag and remove plastic wastes that you find. Or even if it's not on the water, if you do bird watching or just walking in the forest or whatever, if you just take a little bag every time, well, if everyone does that, there will be much less waste out there in the nature. So it can be something easy and simple to do and it can have a good impact. We see it on some trout rivers where we have Associations that do it really strongly, and it has a huge impact if we do it all together. Another thing is keep in mind that you're part of the food chain, even if you are not out there catching a fish with your bare hands or with your spear gun. When you eat fish, you are a predator inside the food chain, and like a wise predator, it's better to take care of this food chain and choose carefully the fish you are going to buy because depending on what you buy you can have a positive impact if you support some uh, sustainable fishing that can even fight off bad industrial overfishing and can fight off some mining projects and stuff like that for example sustainable salmon fisheries in Alaska that are currently fighting against a gold mine project that would completely kill the salmon population up there. Or if you choose the wrong one, you can support some really destructive uh, activities. So it's really important. And for that, there are lots of tools that you can find sustainable fish guides on apps for your smartphone or on internet. They are updated. They are most of the time really good. So of course. Some labels are not exactly as good as they can seem, etc. But most of the times, if you follow the guidelines of these associations, you do more good than harm. Of course, it's always better to eat a carrot than to eat a fish. But if it's a sustainably farmed or sustainably caught fish, it can have a good impact as well.
0: Great asks. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or read your book, where's the best place to do so?
1: To read my book, you can find it on bookstores or online. You put my name and the name of my book and you will find it. There are two editions, one for the UK and one for the US, but you will find the US one easily on all uh, online book retailers. You can find ebook as well quite easily and even audio book in uh, the UK version. To find me, you can find me on Instagram at billfrancois 20 that's my personal and fish related Instagram because I have another one for some comedy shows I do in Paris which is another activity I do (laughs) Uh, the 24 Instagram is my uh, personal one or on Facebook you can find me as well I have a fish on my profile picture so you can find me easily
0: (laughs) wait I'm thrown off you have you you do comedy as well (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah, I do stand-up
1: comedy in French <laughs> as well uh, with a lot of puns in French that will be hard to translate until artificial intelligence can do it for me but yeah it's comedy about society nature people lots of topics and I do that in Paris in a nice theater so it's a new a new life for me uh, I started yeah. a few months ago and it's quite fun
0: amazing I'm gonna have to brush up on my French just so I can check this out
1: oh yeah if you practice your french or if you think you can read subtitles i can send you some parts of the show with subtitles yeah
0: i can read subtitles
1: (laughs) i will send you (laughs) well
0: i'll put a link to everything we chatted about in today's episode on the show notes thank you so much for being on the show today i really enjoy our chat thank you hey do you want to help the oceans Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.